to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be reading just four verses here. Kind of set the stage for our subject matter today. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. You know, sometimes when we are seeking to describe something, to understand the nature of something, we describe it by way of attribution, and sometimes we describe it by way of negation. That is to say, sometimes we attempt to describe things by attributing certain qualities or characteristics to it, and at other times we attempt to describe things by denying certain characteristics or attributes to it. For example, if I say that Bill is tall, dark, and handsome, uh, and there's nobody named here Bill, so I can say that and not get into trouble. If I say Bill is tall, dark, and handsome, I have attributed three qualities to him, tallness, darkness, and handsomeness. If I say Mary is neither pretty nor smart, <laughs> I have denied certain characteristics to her. But in both, case, both cases, I'm describing, once by way of attribution and another by way of, of uh, negation. And it's often helpful to do this, to describe something both ways, to say what it is like and to say what it is not like, to tell what characteristics apply and what characteristics do not apply. And so it is when we describe something of the nature of heaven. We proceeded mostly so far by way of attribution. We've attempted to describe the way heaven is as much as we can tell from Scripture and what we can infer, some things that we can maybe logically deduce from the nature of our redemption. We've sought to learn something more about heaven by seeing what characteristics the Bible attributes to it, seeing what, it's, what, what good things we are to enjoy there. But today we're going to proceed largely by way of negation, that is, by considering what has no place in heaven, because a part of the glory of heaven is what we will find there, and another part of the glory of heaven is what we will not find there. The first thing that I would say here is that in heaven, we will be free from all the troubles and cares of this life. We will be free from all the troubles and cares of this life. While we live in this world, we experience many troubles and cares. We have many tiresome labors. We are often filled with worry and anxiety. Sometimes we feel as though we'll be crushed under the weight of our responsibilities. Have you ever cried out to God in words similar to that of David when he says, and I'm sorry, it's Solomon in Proverbs 30, I am weary, O God. I am weary and worn out. Surely you felt this way at times, worn out, wearied by the responsibilities and the troubles and the cares that you bear. David says in Psalm 25, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. And in the 88th Psalm, the psalmist Heman says, My soul is full of troubles. Solomon says again in Ecclesiastes, All things are full of weariness. 
And in the 90th Psalm, Moses says, The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80, yet their, their span is but toil and trouble. There are certain passages of Scripture that we read and we think, well, that gives us an awfully dim view of life in this world, kind of a pessimistic view. But I would say, no, it's a realistic view. That's not the only things about life in this world that the Bible talks about, but it is a very real part of life in this world, is it not? It's true that we have many things to be thankful for. We enjoy many things, many things that cause us a great deal of joy. But there are also many troubles and many cares, many responsibilities that weigh very heavily upon us at times. Men, you work day in and day out to provide for your family, perhaps, perhaps doing a job you don't really enjoy. But even if you do enjoy it, you feel the constant pressure of the demands of the job and the pressure of making enough money and managing it properly to take care of your family. In addition to this, you have the responsibility of nurturing your wife and children in the faith, of shepherding your little ones, their souls, and through instruction and discipline, and by leading them by your own example in the right ways of the Lord. These are heavy responsibilities, joyful when we embrace them with a whole heart, but also weighty and sometimes tiresome. There is joy in all of this, to be sure, but many troubles and cares come with it. Moms, you have the constant care of little ones. You must deal with the tedium of maintaining the house by cooking and cleaning and doing the wash and the other duties of being a wife and mother, duties that sometimes seem endless and often go unappreciated by your husband and your children. And if you work outside the home, you have all the additional troubles and cares that come with your job, trying to properly balance the responsibilities of home and and work and family. Or if you're a homeschool mom, as some of you are, you have all the responsibilities that come with that. The anxiety of wondering whether you're covering all the subjects that should be covered and covering them uh, to the right degree, the right depth, as thoroughly as they should be covered. While there is joy in being a wife and a mother, there are also many troubles and cares that come with it. Children have troubles at times, too, and responsibilities that they bear. The responsibilities of doing your chores around the house, of getting along with your brothers and sisters, and of applying yourself diligently and doing your best in school. In this life, we have many troubles and cares, but in heaven, we will be free from all of them. Heaven is a place of rest. We will be free from all troublesome and wearying labor. Now, this doesn't mean that we will have no labor and no responsibility in the world to come, but that we will be spared the trouble that comes with these things. Even before the fall, you remember that Adam was called upon to work the ground and tend the garden, which means that work is not a part of the curse, right? It's not like God said, take your leisure in the garden, sit by the pool, sip lemonade, and everything will take care of itself. No, God commanded Adam and Eve to work, to keep the ground, to tend the garden, to nurture it. Work was a pre-fall state of man's um, existence and calling. The problem was that with the fall, work became very complicated. Work became more difficult. It was something that, was, that uh, God placed a burden on. Work was a part of God's original purpose for man, and just as God delights in the work of his hands, so he intends for man to, work, to delight in the work of his. And that man is blessed who finds enjoyment in his work. Solomon says there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Right? It's a necessary thing. We've all got to work. And one great blessing of life is to find enjoyment in the work that we do. 
Solomon says, This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. In another place, still in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot in life. Again, God intends for man to work and to enjoy his labor, and no doubt, no doubt Adam enjoyed his labor before he sinned. As a consequence of his sin, however, God pronounced a certain judgment upon his work. And you know what that judgment was. His, his work would become much more difficult. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread. So work became much more difficult. The earth would no longer yield its fullness without exhausting labor on Adam's part, not without the sweat of his brow. God intended for man to enjoy his labor, but his labor in a fallen world is mixed with much trouble and care. We become weary and tired because of our labor and responsibility. Man sometimes is foiled in the things that he attempts to do. He plows the ground, he plants the seed, he takes pains to water it, but a hailstorm comes through and destroys the crop, and all the labor is done in vain. I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out, Solomon says. Have you not felt that way before? Yet we are promised rest in heaven. In Revelation 14, verse 13, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. In heaven we will rest from our labors. We'll be free from all our troubles and cares. Whatever tasks God might, be, might give to us to, to perform will only delight us. They won't tire us out. We'll not become weary mentally, emotionally, or physically. There'll be nothing to sap our energy or diminish our strength that will be constantly invigorated. Much like the promise that we find in the book of Isaiah, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, this is a promise that relates to life in this world, that when we wait upon God, he is faithful to renew our strength day by day. He will renew our strength as we wait upon him, as we trust, upon, uh, trust him, as we pray to him. But the promise will find its ultimate fulfillment in the world to come, when our natures will be strengthened and perfected and where there will be nothing to make us weary. In the book of Hebrews, we find it written, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the rest which the writer refers to here is the rest that comes as a result of grace. As the Puritan writer Richard Baxter says, he means all that ease and safety which a soul wearied with the burden of sin and suffering and pursued by law, wrath, and conscience hath with Christ in this life and the rest of grace. He means, to quote him again, the whole estate of reconciliation, peace, and happiness purchased by Christ. This is the, the Sabbath rest that is promised to us in the book of Hebrews. But since this ultimate, uh, the ultimate enjoyment of this is to be found in the life and the world to come, we may apply it to 
the time to come as well. There's a Sabbath rest, a rest of grace where we cease from any labor striving to justify ourselves here in this life, but there's also a Sabbath rest to come where the fullness of all that God promises us uh, will be fulfilled. From this, we learn that the weekly Sabbath, which God instituted at the time of creation, and which he enforces in the fourth commandment, and which we now observe on the Lord's day, is a type or a shadow of the rest that we will have in the life to come, both in heaven before the second coming and then after the second coming in the resurrection. So in heaven we will be free from all troubles, all the troubles and cares of this life. We'll also be free from all its pain and sorrow and loss. There's nothing in heaven to make us sad, nothing to cause us any disappointment, and nothing to inflict any sort of pain. Pain, sorrow, and loss are the result of sin and its curse, and they have no place in heaven or in the world to come. The 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle explains heaven like this. Heaven is the eternal presence of everything that can make a saint happy and the eternal absence of everything that can cause sorrow Sickness and pain and disease and death and poverty and labor and money and care and ignorance and misunderstanding and slander and lying and strife and contention and quarrels and envies and jealousies and bad tempers and infidelity and skepticism and irreligion and superstition and heresy and schism and wars and fightings and bloodshed and murders and lawsuits. All, all of these things, he says, shall have no place in heaven. On earth in the present time we may live and flourish. In heaven even their footprints I'm sorry, on earth in this present time, they, all of these terrible things, may live and flourish. In heaven, their footprints shall not be known. Won't that be wonderful? We sometimes watch the evening news or read the newspaper and we think, what in the world is this, what is this world coming to? But in heaven, none of that turmoil, none of that distress, none of that division, vitriol, hatred, and all of those things, none of those things will exist. Now, someone might say, well, is this Ryle's uh, simply his imagination? Well, not at all. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, the Lord gives us a poetic vision of what is in store for us in the world to come. And I think it exceeds what J.C. Ryle describes. In the 11th chapter of Isaiah, we find it written that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We have great things to look forward to, a time of great rest and also a time of, of ceasing uh, of, of all strife and hostility. Even a transformation takes place in the natural order of things, in the animal kingdom, where the lion um, can lie down with the lamb, and the lamb is not threatened because the lion doesn't wish to eat it any longer. I, I really enjoy watching nature videos. I spend probably more time than I should watching YouTube, National Geographic, and other things, um, African safari-type videos. And when you see a lion kill a wildebeest or something, and you think how brutal, how terrible, it's gut-wrenching to see the suffering of that animal. But there's coming a day in which that will never take place anymore. And I often think how the animals might rejoice to not bear the burden of having to 
tear and kill their prey to eat it. But they can find sustenance in food that feels no pain. They can eat straw like the ox. God will redeem all of humanity. I believe that all predatory animals became predatory as a result of the fall, just like all thorns and thistles that exist now exist because of the fall. is one of the ways in which God cursed all of creation. Cursed, God says to the serpent, are you above all the beasts of the field? So we know that all the beasts of the field somehow were cursed. And I think the predatory animals were cursed by becoming predatory. In a fallen world where there's inevitably death, there must be a means to, to take care of those animals that will one day die. In some cases, these animals also kill and eat their prey. But in any case, Isaiah tells us here, and he should know a thing or two about this because he's a prophet of God. God spoke to him and through him, and he said that all of these things will be done away with. The nursing child should put his hand on the adder's den, the viper, the serpent, that would otherwise kill the child with its venom. The nursing child should put his hand on the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. What a blessed day that will be. But this isn't the only place where these things are mentioned. The Lord gave John a vision of the new Jerusalem, which he describes in the book of Revelation. He says, for instance, later in the chapter, chapter 21, where we just read, we read verses 1 through 4, but in verses 22 and 23, it says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, is the light of the holy city. In the same chapter, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Earlier in Revelation, Revelation 7, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching wind, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then the verse 4 of the passage that we read to begin our sermon today. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All of these things that cause us such sorrow will be no more. In heaven there will be no sickness to suffer, nor death to dread. How many of our worries and burdens here in this life and our fears are related to this, the fear or the dread of sickness and death. We suffer various aches and pains. Our mortal body grows weaker as it ages. Our faculties lose their edge, their sharpness. Often with age, we lose our mental abilities. Many in their senior years suffer with some form of dementia. But none of these things will be found in heaven. We'll be free of everything that ails us here in this life. And in the resurrection, we'll have new bodies made forever young and strong and healthy. Think of yourself in your prime, prime health. What was, when was that? 18 years old, 20 years old? I don't know. Maybe it's now for you. I don't. Think of yourself in your prime. You'll be a million times better than that in the resurrection because there will be no possibility of sin or sickness or suffering or death. Perhaps you suffer now in your body. Perhaps you live with constant pain or some aggravating or debilitating illness. I hope and pray that you will be healed. 
But if not, please be comforted in the fact that you will soon be free. When the Lord takes you to heaven, all your pains will be gone. Perhaps you have a loved one who suffers from mental disorder or who has Alzheimer's. This is a very sad and tragic thing. We've all seen it. But in heaven, all who have suffered with this disease here will be free of it there. They'll be, their faculties will be restored, and they'll be more than restored. They'll be better than they ever were in this life. In heaven, there will be no fear. Not only no pain or sickness or suffering, but no fear. What is it that causes fear but the threat of harm? But who is there to harm us in heaven? What is there to harm us there? There are no evil men to steal, kill, or destroy. The devil is not allowed there. The dangers that threaten our mortal bodies here cannot harm our soul there. There will be nothing to fear in heaven, nothing to dread. There will be no frustration in heaven. Frustration in having your plans come to nothing. No frustration with other people uh, because they'll all be saints. And you'll be a saint. And you'll be confirmed in a state of righteousness or holiness. You'll not be aggravating to anybody else and nobody else will be aggravating to you. There'll be nothing there to cause frustration. Here we often make plans only to have our plans come to nothing. Things didn't turn out like we had hoped. But in heaven, there will be no frustration, nothing to disappoint, no longing that will fail to be satisfied, no hope or expectation of anything good that will not be fulfilled, no request that will not be granted, because all of our requests will be holy and good, and God will be pleased to grant everything that we ask. In heaven, there will be no boredom. Think of that, no boredom. Here we sometimes become bored even with the good things that we enjoy at first. Have you ever heard a song that you really liked and you listened to it over and over again and then after a while you take less and less delight in it until maybe you've heard it so often that you just turn it off because you are sick of it. You know, some, some, the newness, the freshness, the novelty, the enjoyment runs out. Sometimes we're that way with food. But in heaven there will be no boredom. Every day will be better than the day before. There will always be something good to look forward to, some new discovery of, of God's goodness, some new discovery of his greatness, some new insight into his wisdom, grace, and mercy. One of the greatest comforts of all is knowing that the blessedness of heaven will never end. It will never end. It's hard for us being finite creatures to fathom eternity to think of never-endingness, either in the past or in the future. God is eternal. We are not. We came into existence, but we are guaranteed an eternal existence once we have come into existence. The question is, where will we spend it, in heaven or in hell? As saints, we have the promise of heaven. And one of the blessings of, and, uh, and comforts of, of all this is knowing that that blessedness is eternal. It will never come to an end. Sometimes the delight we find in earthly things is diminished because we know that our enjoyment of them will come to an end some, at some point. Like when you're on vacation, right, and you're free from all responsibility. No agenda. You can hang out at the hotel, swimming pool, sipping lemonade by day if you wish to. 
Maybe you want to go out and see a show in the evening, do some sightseeing tomorrow, but there's nothing you have to do. No responsibilities. Right? The maid comes in, cleans the room, takes care of everything. You don't have to prepare your own food, clean up after yourself. Everything is just delightful. But as you get towards the end of the vacation, you're thinking, oh, man, I've got to get back to the real world <laughs> one of these days. Right? So sometimes the anticipation of some good coming to an end diminishes our enjoyment of that. But we'll never experience that in heaven. It will be an eternal good. It will never end. It's referred to as an eternal kingdom. Paul speaks of it as an eternal weight of glory. If there could ever be an end to heaven's glory, or if we should ever have the least suspicion that it might end, then we might, it might diminish our happiness. It would greatly diminish our enjoyment of it. But our enjoyment of heaven will never end. Surely the goodness and mercy of the Lord shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for how long? Forever. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. These things will never come to an end. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father.